Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse, armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola. Today we've got one of my drumming heroes, Dave Watts of the Motet, the funkiest band in the land, if that land is Colorado and probably the United States. But, you know, uh, their new album, All Day, is amazing. Uh, The Motet got its start in Boulder, but Dave really got his musical start in the Northeast in um, uh, kind of the same scene at the same time as Fish. So getting to know his story and his uh, five albums was definitely a treat. Um, It is pouring rain outside right now in Boulder, and you can probably hear that. (laughs) Um, We have some Seattle, Amsterdam weather right now, and it's, it's about time, unless you're crazy like me and you still ride your bike up the mountains, it's about time to sit indoors listening to 105.5 The Colorado Sound, which always has great music of all kinds and can be heard at thecoloradosound.org or on your radio dial along the front range. Um, I also want to remind you that Saturday, June 3rd, I'm doing another live episode of Mile High Stash at the Roots Music Project in Boulder with my guest Steve Varney of Gregory Allen is a Cubs band, also known as Kid Reverie. Uh, it's a free show, and Steve is going to be playing some acoustic songs and getting interviewed by me. So make sure to reserve tickets, even though they're free, um, at rootsmusicproject.org. All right, here's my chat with one of the great funk drummers of the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, Dave Watts of the Motet. Um, we also have Moncton Guitars and the Velvet Elk Lounge presenting this episode of Mile High Stash. So first, some words from them. Just don't ask me to be the man. This episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you in part by Boulder's newest live music destination, the Velvet Elk Lounge a small yet funky downtown venue where you can check out a concert or just grab a proper cocktail at the bar. The Velvet Elk Lounge is open Wednesday through Sunday with happy hour from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. each night. Sundays are industry night at the Velvet Elk with all-night happy hour specials. Check out velvetelklounge.com for upcoming events including Desert Furs, Deadfish Orchestra, and more. So, Dave Watts, yes, sir. Motet, mm-hmm. where the hell are you from? What's your story? Oh, I, man. I've met you a bunch of times, but I don't think... <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, you know, are you talking about starting from the beginning? The very beginning. The very like beginning? Birth. Oh, yeah. birth. Yeah. That was uh, Miami, Florida, 1968. It's a good year. Yeah. Um, I don't know about in Florida, but other places it was a good year. There was a lot of Summer of Love stuff happening that year, I think. Yeah. Or was that 69? 67 was the Summer of Love, but oh, 68, shit. I mean, that's a year. Summer of Soul. Remember that? Did you see oh, that movie? that's an amazing yeah. movie, yeah. All right. Anyway, there was good stuff happening, but um, I was there for a couple of years, moved to Tallahassee, there for a few years, moved to um, 
Blacksburg, Virginia, was there for a few years, moved to Syracuse, New York, and I was there through high school and then uh, ended up in Boston. What did your parents do that you were moving around on? Uh, they were sort of chasing tenure. Yeah. I was uh, going to say, they were teachers. Yeah, yeah they were teachers. Um, so I ended up in Boston for college. I was at like BU, Boston University, for a year. Studying music? Uh, yeah, trying to, but it wasn't really in my bag. It was all classical, mm. you know, and I just, I'm not a fan of counting measures, you know, if, as a classical percussionist, you know, unless you're mm. playing a leading role, you're, you're counting like five minutes worth of like measures until like that one cymbal crash or bass drum hit, you know, you don't want to be thinking when you're playing funk. Yeah. Music. Yeah. No, it's a different thing. I was, I was more, you know, interested in playing jazz at that point, you mm. know? So I, where I was, um, where I was, uh, my, where my dorm was, was fairly close to Berkeley College of Music. I was in Kenmore Square area, and Berkeley's just down Mass Ave. And um, I would go there and see these kids playing drums and you know jamming in the jam rooms and the rehearsal spaces till midnight. You know, I'm just like, God damn it, I need to get in on that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just felt like I was missing out. And then I saw Tommy Campbell's great drummer used to play uh, quite a bit in the eighties and he was teaching there and I had known about him through modern drummer magazine. I was just like, man, uh, and I saw I Nesson and Tommy Campbell and uh Kai Eckhart doing a little session in his, uh, his office. I'm just like, man, I'm missing out. Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Pl counting measures. <laughs> And, uh, and so I was just like this, you know, I, I called my mom just like literally crying, hmm. you know, it was, you know, semi real tears, but, you know, also staging a little bit of drama there to mm -hmm. get her to like sort of, uh, get on my side and be like, you know, I want to switch schools, you know, I want to go to Berkeley college of music, which was like somewhat horrifying for her because she wanted to get me to get like at least some kind of academic education right. to fall back on something, I guess. But, um, uh, you know, I, I convinced my parents and, uh, and I just made a pretty quick and easy move down the street to Berkeley and uh, put in a few years there. And graduated? <clears throat> no, no one graduates. And if you do, you don't admit it. You got what you needed. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. You get what you need. And like eventually there's so much. Boston is just, I don't, I don't know about now, but back then it was on fire it was just there was so much music happening and so many opportunities uh that um you know eventually it's just like you start playing live and you start gigging mm -hmm. and working and making money and eventually it's like well, you know you don't need to feel like you need a piece of paper to prove you're a musician you know yeah so um yeah i started playing with a band um out of boston for a few years and then we would tour what was that band called tour to colorado uh it was called chakra and you would tour out to Colorado. Yeah. Uh, our bass player, Edwin, used to give um, the bass player for Fish lessons on like slapping and popping and like that style of funk. And um, and so we kind of we, we became friends with Fish. We would open up for Fish. and What? They would come into our house and play these after parties. Yeah. Back when they were still playing the Paradise Club in Boston. Yeah. This was like 88. Well, no, I was living in that 89, 90. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> there was a lot we, of rock and roll. To, 
what was? There was a lot of rock and roll at that time in the Boston area, like the throwing, oh. throwing muses and bands yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, Pixies. But yeah, I didn't... Alt rock. But it was the beginnings of, of the jam scene. It was, yeah. you know, because uh, we... We didn't call ourselves a jam band, you know, neither did Fish, like none of us. Right. But it was like, we, you know, I don't know. Do we play jam music? I'm not sure where the name came from, but, um, but we would just, we were just like, we're just a, a band, you know, we're kind of defying certain um, genres, I guess. And, and, you know, pigeonhole, like we're just like, well, we want to improvise and we want to jam. We want to do what we learned you know, uh, as far as what, you know, we learned as jazz musicians, mm-hmm. you know, as far as improvising and, and trying to do something more harmonically creative, you know, than like maybe classic rock stuff. And uh, we were into world music, Fela Kuti, you know, um, different, you know, African styles and Cuban styles. And so we're just kind of putting it all into one big pot, you know what I mean? And um, And it was really the jam scene built itself out of uh, the ability to do it yourself. I think it's the DIY culture that started to come about with fish. Everyone was watching and being like, wow, you can tour and sell these big venues and not have a record label. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was before they got signed. They were, they were huge before they even got signed, you know. And I'm not even sure why they decided to get signed because they were already making it. But we were all watching them being like, shit. We don't need to like have a record deal to tour and be successful and and we don't like have to play pop music to have a bigger audience accept yeah. us. It was kind of like all these kids that were gathering around the dead, going this counterculture, and they're coming out to see, you know, bands that want to improvise and jam and play extended solos and get psychedelic and weird and there it was like a positive response to that you know and so it was very encouraging yeah. coming from the jazz background to be like oh we don't have to be in a jazz club to do this stuff that's so satisfying for us uh, so those two things combined like the 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 ability to improvise and to to take it to different creative spaces and also to be able to tour without this big machine behind you yeah because <clears throat> we used to have these um I guess Fish started this too, man. We used to have these mailing list parties. And, um, you know, we would uh, we'd get a bunch of your friends and a bunch of beer. And, you you know, you'd be playing shows and you'd get everyone's, like, mailing address at the show. And then you'd print off all these little postcards with your dates on them. And then uh, you'd get your friends to come over and you'd literally be licking stamps. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And putting on the like, return address and all these, you know, it, it, was, a, it was an effort. But if you did that, yeah, DIY, if you did that, then you had a leg up on the competition. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could actually do it. So Fish lent us their uh, lent us their mailing list the first time we came out to Colorado. And we were like... That's priceless. Our friends. We, we spelled every F word with a PH just to let people know, like, <laughs> this is how we got their name, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, and we came out to Colorado because Fish came to Colorado, and we like sold out every venue. We were, like, where did you play that first time? Oh man, we like because back then it was like a lot more snow, so winters were like every ski area was just packed with people, mm-hmm. and there was just the snow was insane, you know. And I remember going to Telluride, and we were supposed to be there for two nights, and we stayed for four because we got snowed in. There was so much snow we couldn't leave. 
We were playing at this little spot called the Fly Me the Moon Saloon. And uh, and there was, uh, uh, it was just a packed house every night, you know. Yeah. And, and then we, made, we went to Steamboat for four or five days, Crested Butte for a few days, Durango. We just did the whole round. But we were out in Colorado for three weeks just playing every night at different skiers. But then we ended up, last show was at the Fox Theater. We were the second band to play the Fox um because they opened up that year, you know, just a really just a couple of weeks before we was this ninety two? Yeah, it was like ninety two. Mm-hmm. And um so we went into the Fox Theater, you know, and I remember just being blown away because the sound guy comes out, and he's like, Hey guys, how you doing? Smiling his face, so excited to see us. You know, we're like, Why are you so happy? <laughs> like everyone like at the venue was so happy to see us and just so positive. I'm like, we're used to being in Boston where like Every sound man's just smoking his cig and like drinking coffee and just grumpy as shit, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was so inspiring, man. We we're just like, God, man, like you don't have to hate your job to be in this business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we had a sold out show that night. We were just like, man, like I remember next door to Lagi was sold out with uh, this group called Band Du Jour. It was a big band back in the '90s around Colorado. Um, Leftover Salmon was at the Boulder Theater. That was sold out. It was just popping there was, up. Yeah, the next, on the other side of the Fox, there was a spot called Taylor's, and that was packed. I mean, there was like, back then, any, you know, any night of the week, there could be like five or six, seven, eight venues that were, you know, jumping with live mm. music. You know, Boulder was was really a happening scene back then. Uh, so, like, that was just our first trip out. We came out probably five or six times after that. And uh, every time it's just it's great, man. It felt so good. So you decided to just move here? Yeah, I was like, eventually, I was like, I'm staying. <laughs> you know, I'm staying. You just know, in Boulder, like immediately. In Boulder. Boulder, because that, that was it. Like we didn't even play in Denver. There's yeah, nowhere to play in Denver. Denver has had nothing. You know, Cervantes wasn't around then. No, no, it, Cervantes was still like a decade off or whatever. Um, but Boulder and then the mountains, you know. Mm-hmm. But. Um, and then once I moved out, we played Netherlands. I mean, there was there was months when I was living out here back then. I would play twenty six nights a month just in Boulder and Netherlands. Wow, you know, and it was like coffee shop gigs or the Pioneer. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Like Pioneer Inn, Wolf Tongue Brewery. There was like an acid jazz jam that would happen every Monday. It was really fun. We had a little hippie commune out in the outside of boulder just like you know a mile so we had like a little scene out there met the string cheese guys it was a whole it was a whole thing we had a whole like vibe going on for sure so i'm gonna ask you um about the next sort of step in your life after i get your first album that you would take you would take with you oh yeah in the event of a zombie apocalypse and you're stranded you're completely alone Right. And you're in a cabin, um, you know, maybe peak to peak highway somewhere. Oh, okay. Something like that. Way up there. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote these down because uh, you asked me before. But um, the first caveat is like, really, there's like, if I was going to pick, it'd be from like a probably like 500 records yeah. that I would all, you know, all be equally as important to me. But uh, I just picked a few because, you know, you got to just narrow it down, I guess. 
But the first one I, I put down was uh, Bitches Brew, Miles Davis. Nice. Yeah. got a zombie vibe too it's a little yeah it's, i guess it's a, it could be a little spooky for yeah, that situation yeah, yeah. but um maybe that uh, helped me deal you know like build my character to deal with these zombies out the window spanish key but, is one of the greatest tracks yeah in music history in it in yeah. my opinion yeah it's one of those records i've listened to it hundreds of times and every time i hear something new do you remember the first time you heard bitches brew Phew. wow not really but uh it was definitely in the 80s like when I was in college, you know, mm -hmm. exploring all that jazz music that was just like, because when I was in high school, it was more classic rock, Zeppelin, Beatles, you know, the stuff I heard on the radio. Uh, but my mom's husband turned me, he had like a huge album collection. He turned me on to a lot of music, especially a lot of jazz, Herbie Hancock stuff and Crusaders, Miles Davis. So I'm pretty sure that was probably first time like end of high school beginning of college mm -hmm. yeah and i haven't stopped since man i'll, I'll put it on every few weeks man just, yeah you know revisit it it's crazy you always hear something new on yeah that, on that record yeah it goes it's deep it's like three-dimensional mm. so you know what i mean a lot and i love music like that where you put on headphones and you can just hear you know some music like some instrument is like way back there in the back of the room you know and then something else is right up close and mm -hmm. You know, the three-dimensional perspective is really, like, engaging. You know how they do laser Pink Floyd? They should do laser bitches. Oh, would, yeah. Just me and you will be there. <laughs> and I drag my kid. And yeah, I drag my him. kid, too. I force him to listen to it. Um, have you ever... It was 1969 or maybe 70... Uh, the Bitches Brew band yeah. that played on it opened for the Grateful Dead oh, yeah. at the Fillmore. Which is just absurd, you know, the, right. the, that that was the bill, you know, but I was wondering if you've heard that recording as I've heard it. and Yeah, I can't, I can't recall specifically, but I've heard definitely a bunch of his recordings from the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine was saying that he was at the, um, the one where he opened up for his, well, it was the same one, Steve Miller band. And then uh, maybe the Grateful Dead was after them, or maybe it was somebody else. But he talks about opening for Steve Miller band at the um, at the Fillmore, and he was not having it. He was like, "That no playing, motherfucker." Yeah, he was not having opening. I'm sure he appreciated the Dead way more. I hope they paid him well to open for well, yeah. Steve Miller. I mean, Bill Graham was like, I mean, more he talked him into it, just like the kids will love you. Yeah. <laughs> so the next step in your in your life, uh, presumably. Um, I remember when I showed up in Boulder in 2008, hearing about this guy, <clears throat> Dave Watts, oh, yeah. who had Dave Watts's motet. Oh yeah. So, did it start at Mountain Sun? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was uh, man, it was so great every time. I still play at the. I play. I sat in at the Mountain Sun the other day because I moved back to Boulder recently. But um, we still play the Southern Sun, you know, Christmas party mm -hmm. every year. But uh, it feels good to come back to it, you know. But that's definitely where we got our start. We got our start, you know, I got my start playing at the Mountain Sun in Boulder before the Motet, just doing mm -hmm. trio gigs, jams, you know, folk gigs, whatever there. But um, those guys asked me to put together a band for 
their Halloween party that they did. I don't know how annual it was at that point because it was 97 or 98. So maybe they'd done a few of them. But, um, you know, one of the things they did for the party every year was they brew mushroom beer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'd have this one keg. They'd have all their kegs of beer because they brew beer, but they have one keg that was the mushroom beer. And, um, and so they asked me to put together a band for the party. And, uh, and I was like, sure. And then I called a bunch of my friends. I got Evan on bass and my buddy, Jamie Janover on percussion and a bunch of local guys. And I just, I would take, um, acid jazz song, not acid jazz, jazz songs like, you know, Billy's bounce and, uh, you know, scrapple from the apple, some shit like that, you know, like some, some, uh, you know, bird songs or mm. whatever, and jazz tune standards out of the real book. And then I would take one sheet and then I would take a piece of paper and I would tape it to the piece of paper and then I'd write a form for the, for the song, like, you know, head two times, you know, keyboard solo, percussion, guitar solo. And then I have another sheet was like the other chart, the other tune and be like, and then segue, you know, and I'd have two tunes and I would try and create a big arrangement out of these straight ahead jazz songs. But, you know, of course we play it with the backbeat or a funk mm. groove and try and make it danceable and that sort of thing. And that was my sort of MO that very first, that was the very first motet show ever. Dave Watts motet. I was like, I didn't have a name. And I was like, I would always call it like anytime I was doing a gig around town, Dave Watts trio, Dave Watts quartet, Dave Watts quintet. So eventually I was like, well, this time I'm just going to call it the Dave Watts motet. And then I don't want to change the poster. I'll just right. call it yeah. that. So that was the first one. And so, um, so there we were up, you know, playing this show and, uh, we had all these charts everywhere, you know, that I put together and, uh, all these kids just high on mushroom beer, you know, mm -hmm. just getting freaky. We're talking about magic mushroom beer. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That, Portobello wouldn't be that great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this is like, <laughs> this is like, you know, psychedelic mushroom beer. And, um, and of course we would, you know, in set break, we helped ourselves and it got really weird. This is like the acid test, but in Boulder. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. The mushroom test. And, um, but it was fucking great, you know what I mean? Like just playing these songs. I mean, eventually we had to just throw away the charts because, you know, mushrooms and charts don't really go together. So, yeah. but we, it was great for experimenting and, and getting crazy with the sounds and getting psychedelic. So, you know, that's kind of our, the roots are beginning. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, it's evolved quite a bit and it keeps changing, you know, but I feel like there's part of us that still, you know, maintains that. That's sort of like um, just pushing the envelope and even like psychedelic flavor to, to what we do. Some of the stuff that you sent me uh, from the new album um, is, for me, a mixture of the, the talking heads sort of funk. Oh, good. I'm glad you heard that. And then the Miles Davis, like the get up with it <clears throat> on the corner. Nice. The Bitches yeah. Brew. Cool. When did you... I mean, originally you were studying classical and then jazz, but when was funk the thing mm. for you? And you said, this is me. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it was really when I joined Chakra. Mm -hmm. My buddy Edwin uh, made me a mixtape of funk stuff because I had never really listened to funk. In fact, I, you know, for me, funk was equated to disco and I was kind of reacting to disco because when I was younger, disco became not cool. Mm -hmm. And with, from a jazz perspective, 
it's kind of like square, you know what I mean? Rhythmically. Uh, so for me, uh, I kind of just shunned that. And if I was like into funk at all, it was more like funk fusion, like, you know, um, I don't know, like, um, I don't know any, any like return Billy, to forever, return to like forever and Billy Cobham and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But you know, in the end, muscular it's, funk. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's more aggressive funk and it, and it's not pocket funk like P funk and it's not dance oriented mm-hmm. necessarily. So when Edwin made me that, that recording, that tape, he kind of turned me on to a, a lot of different styles of funk, even, you know, stuff like the um, little feet, you know, live and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just really like turned my head around. Yeah, you know, with what funk is all about, you know, in the in the pocket of funk. Um, so that's when I started really listening to it, and it's just like it's, it's still just an exploration to this day. I find music on YouTube or Spotify that I haven't heard before from the seventies. I'm like, what the hell is this band, man? It's, you know, like that era. There was so much. It was like R and D. Like the record companies were pumping so much money into these bands that never made it but still made a record here Mm. and there you know it was great they would like kind of bring a band up into the studio and and have them make something that sounded you know at least listenable uh you know nowadays like bands don't have that opportunity you don't have they don't get the opportunity of having a producer that's quality necessarily without paying an arm and a leg out of their own pocket for it so back then it was like the industry had was making so much money they're putting it back into the bands so like there's a ton of bands out there that got that treatment that yeah. you know we, we wouldn't hear about it if it weren't for youtube thank god for youtube you right know? yeah so, i'm still discovering music like that it's great well you know and and then there's the 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 funk music and psychedelic music that we can discover now that was in like ethiopia or west yeah. africa and shit like that yeah the nigerian stuff yeah mm. Yeah, I love it. It's endless, really. What is it about, you know, that beat? About I played with with Gasoline Lollipops for a long time and and there is a specific <laughs> the train beat, you know. Yeah. And and that is is definitely ingrained in me. And then also I grew up playing the drums mm. in punk bands. Yeah. You know, but what is it for you about that funk? Well, it's a it's a good question. It's different for everybody, I think, you know, but there's a there's a certain timing, you know, where the drums can pull back, you know, right before a drummer does a fill, and right before the one, he adds a little space. Hmm. That little bit of space there can create a feeling, you know what I mean? Even if the other instruments are, are ahead and the drums are behind, you'll hear that with John Bonham. That's what makes his drumming funky is that he would add, pull that back a little bit in those yeah. moments, you know? And it would create a certain space that just does something to the body, you know what I mean? Does something and makes you want to move, to move your head a little bit, you know what I mean? Move your feet, whatever it is. There's some, it definitely has to do with like timing in milliseconds. And, you know, it, it would be terrible if someone like actually, you know, quantified it somehow. Mm-hmm. To, you know what I mean? Like exactly how many milliseconds it is. And, right. You know what I mean? Like that's, to me, it's like, it's that feeling and it, and it is an exact, you know what I mean? It's just a feeling and it's just something that's like, I think the drummers in the seventies were just hearing it all the time. And so they just did it naturally, you know, mm-hmm. when, um, clicks and the grid started showing up and pro tools and everyone's like, well, it's easier to edit if we just have everything exactly lined up. 
you know, and I get that, but it's like when that started happening, people's ears started moving towards this more exacting mm. f- timing, you know what I mean? And so uh, that became, you know, the way to play is like play exact, you know, but being able to pull back, you know, if you listen to Steve Jordan, he like mm-hmm. talks about it, you know, when he does clinics and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and it really is like, and also the tone, like the tone of the, of the snare and the tone of the hi-hats and the tone of the kick make a big difference in making something sound funky. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like if you ever listen to smooth jazz, smooth jazz, huh? Kenny G. Kenny G. Mm. (laughs) Any of it, like there was smooth jazz in the seventies, but because they were playing it live and Mm. because they were playing it with tones that were organic sounding and it went to tape and all that, it's it was still satisfying, you right, know what I mean? Right. But then when the eighties hit and it started getting quantized and you heard the DX seven come in and gated reverbs and st- it just killed the vibe and it yeah. made it less to me, less funky, less, you know, satisfying, you know? So it's like it's a combination of things for sure. <laughs> the most fascinating thing for me as basically a, a self taught punk rock drummer is that someone like me is constantly attempting to be on time, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And if I think about it, I'll be off time. That's for sure. Yeah. But someone like you and, and maybe a Vinnie Caliuta, I I don't know, the, the, the drummers that I consider just the gods of drumming, they're not on time or off time. They can actually like you're saying, they're so with time that they can even mess with it. Right. You know. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it's like you have to make the click work for you, not the other way around, you know. And the best drummers can play behind the click, on top of the click, you know, pull back when they need yeah. to. And then the best bands are the ones that don't need a click at all. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, and can just agree upon and sway with the time without it, you know. And then that's like when it's really musical. You know. Do you ever use one just to start a song off? Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it helps, you know. Yeah. I don't mind I don't mind it and and I don't even mind music that's quantized to the click as long as like there's still it's still musical, you know what I mean? Like I said there's no one way and there's I don't think that the other, you know, a click is evil or even quantized music is evil or something. You know, I think it's it's just a matter of like preference and just, you know, being musical and having something to say, you know, but in the end for me, like what makes things funky is, you know, that lilt. Yeah. You know, even pushing tempos is, is musical and funky. You know what I mean? Like what, think of all the Herbie records, you know, and, um, the drummers that, you know, you've listened to a lot of Herbie records like that. It speeds up, you know, but it's okay. Everyone's playing together and they're feeling it. And like, they're, they're musical about it and they do it in the right place. And you know what I mean? Even John Bonham, like if you listen to Levy Breaks, you know, one of the most iconic drum beats of all time. Yeah. And um, halfway through, it's like you listen to the end and compared to the beginning, yeah, it's, you know, it's five or six clicks faster. But <laughs> what about Honky Tonk Woman? Right. Stones. It's almost yeah. double time by, yeah, right. by the end. Yeah. So it's like it's everyone trusting each other and playing together. That's the most important thing. Yeah. You know. So, could you give me your number two and three? Mm. Oh, uh, number two, something different. I wrote down 
Trouble by Ray LaMontagne. Oh, yeah? You know that record? I don't know if I know that record, but his voice is something that you hear once and you yeah. don't forget. Yeah, he's a uh, man of something else. That's his first record, and the, the production, the drumming, and the songs, the way he sings, it's like I never get tired of it. And it's just just to like, uh, you know, if I was like stuck in the cabinet somewhere, just to balance it out, mm. I'd want something like that because it's just pure happiness. Mm. Even though he's singing about sad themes, it's just like this feeling of um, it's just such heartfelt music that it just gives you this peace of mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's almost like sadness, but a release of sadness. So it's like an acceptance of sadness or something, mm. you know, and it's just so calming and chill. And uh, and just well crafted music, it's worth checking out. You should check it. So you don't only sit at home listening to funky beats. You have, <laughs> no. you have a, a range of tastes. Yes, yes, yeah. all sorts of moods. All right, you want the next one? Yeah. Uh, this one you know, Asia. Oh, well, everyone knows that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just a perfect record. I mean, what can you say? A perfect record. Yeah, that's a bold statement. I know. Well, yeah. it really is though. Like if you look at the the. Uh, the um, sound quality, hmm. the performance, the writing, fucking hey, man. Yeah, doesn't get any better. I know it's like a little bit, you know, over mentioned, I guess. But have you seen the making of Asia? No, that's uh -huh. that, you find that on YouTube. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Interviews with all the players and that sort of thing. It's a shame that Walter's not up around anymore. I know. I got to see him at Red Rocks. That was great. I saw this this video last year of Steely Dan playing Shakedown Street mm, by the what? Dead. It was way better than what the Dead ever played. Honestly, ever what? played Shakedown That's Street. So unlikely. It was almost like it was made for them. Where was that? I think it was like at the Beacon Theater. Wow. Oh, it's fantastic. That's bizarre. Yeah. Okay. That's cool though. Moncton Guitars has been selling vintage guitars, amps, and effects for 31 years and now has a brick-and-mortar shop conveniently located between Denver and Boulder, just off Highway 36 in Broomfield. In addition to a fine selection of vintage and used gear, Moncton Guitars also carries new equipment from major brands like Epiphone, Guild, and Marshall, along with a great selection of Colorado-built instruments. Moncton also offers accessories, lessons, and inexpensive but expert repairs and setups. So check out MonktonGuitars.com today for more info or just stop by. That's M-O-N-K-T-O-N Guitars in Broomfield. So tell me about the evolution of the Motet. And correct me if I'm wrong, but has Ryan been the longest standing member? Is that right? No, uh, Garrett joined in like 2003 yeah I believe. that's a that's a while yeah no he's on working on 20 years because it was the summer of 2003 but um ryan was probably 2005 okay and those guys were off and on for a number of years we've been solid the three of us have been solid since uh I don't know, 2007 or nine or something like that. He's a bass player? Garrett, yeah. 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 And then... Uh, well, you better be solid. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's just... he, You know, at the beginning days, it's just kind of like, you know, 
what happens when a you know young band is like you you gotta like sort of uh figure out how much you can tour to make you know to keep relevant and to and to like get your name out there but you know not starve the musicians because you're not making any money you know mm. sleeping on couches and floors and that whole bit so uh you know we were it was like I didn't have that much to offer necessarily financially. Mm-hmm. It was still like kind of tenuous. And, you know, Garrett got a great gig with this R&B artist, Dwele. And um, uh, and Ryan had a gig he was touring with and he took off to do that. And, but, you know, it's the beauty of living in Colorado. There's just so many musicians and people always want to come back here, you know. Mm-hmm. So they came back and, and we just, you know started it back up again around that time period mm. 2007 or 9 I can't remember I need to I don't know write some kind of like chronology of the bands so I can it's family pretty, tree of them yeah no it's yeah. pretty fun too to go back and be like what was I doing then and what, right. what songs we were playing and are you celebrating like your 25th anniversary yeah Montet, this pretty, year I, I think so like I can't remember exactly when we started if it was 97 or 98 yeah. but yeah 25 years. That's incredible. I know. It's insane. <laughs> Still doing it. Well, it's like any any relationship. You got to take some space too. Yeah. So it's good that. You... Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, I've never tried to like, you know, guilt somebody or whatever, mm-hmm. like buy somebody back into the band if they wanted to leave and then they got to leave. You know what I mean? Like it's, no one's ever signed a contract necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like that. It's like, if you don't want to. I wouldn't want anyone to be in the band that didn't want to be there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if, like, uh, I mean, just recently Lyle, our singer had to bounce, you know, and do some different stuff. And so I don't hold it against them, you know, it's, yeah. like, you know, it's what you got to do. And so you got to, how so, many singers have you had? Uh, decent amount. Um, probably not as many as guitar players. Yeah. But I don't know. Uh, we've had our main singers, We've had uh, Jans and then Lyle. Those are the two guys on the records. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of guests. Yeah. Yeah. But those are the two guys on the records. Um, Tell me about this new record. New record's all instrumental. And um, except there's a couple of talk box tunes. Right. Our keyboard player does talk box, Joey Porter. Um. But aside from that, it's all instrumental stuff. So we're kind of going back to that, which is nice. How did you decide to go back to that? Well, it just seemed like an obvious choice because when, you know, when Lyle left, it's like, wow. Yeah. We thought about uh, collaborating. Like, okay, we got these tunes. And we have a bunch of songs that are either like written, half written or recorded that could use vocals, but we just haven't, you know, figured it out yet. I like the instrumental stuff. That's that's in <laughs> people, my people. Yeah, people like people who like instrumental music are very vocal about saying they like instrumental mm-hmm. music. So we we're like, oh, this is this is going to really work for us. But then we go out into the world, and we play places besides Colorado, and people are like, "Where's your singer?" You know what I mean? Like, yeah. They don't get it. So uh, we could keep doing it as an instrumental band. But I, I just feel like our future and what we really want to do is is bring a vocalist in and, and have the best of both worlds. You know, yeah, yeah. we'll always play instrumental music live, and I'm my goal is really to try and integrate 
a singer into our instrumental music and not have this sort of like we're either playing a vocal song and it feels like a you know very specific style and kind of music and then we're playing instrumental music and it's something different and we have mm-hmm. to like go back and forth you know satisfying the crowds whatever like the division in the crowd for or even us you know like i want to integrate the two so it's like the vocals are just part of the music you know and and they can either be there or not but it doesn't necessarily change who we are how we come across yeah well the first thing that i listened to was evil twin which which is one of the songs that you wrote and that um i was just talking with Adrian Ballou this morning about Remain in Light. And mm. that song definitely sounded like something that can nice. be on Remain in Light. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you heard that. That's exactly my intention with that song. Yeah. You know, I wasn't trying to cop any of their licks or anything, but I just, in hearing it, I just, it evokes in my ear the best of, of Talking Heads. You know, I love that music, especially the era when Bernie Worrell was sitting in with them. And yeah. Adrian Ballou, there's an album or album. There's a YouTube live video, the Rome concert. The Rome concert. Yeah, he Bro. was saying. Um, I was asking him about that, and he was saying that was the peak. Uh, really? Oh heads. man, that's awesome. I think it was the peak of civilization. <laughs> I mean, that, there's so much energy in that room, yeah. and they're obviously feeling it. You they're know? two bass players. Yeah, uh, Ch- Busta, Busta Jones, Cherry Jones, yeah. Busta Cherry Jones, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, Tina Weymouth Tina is Weymouth. playing baseball, standing on top of a monitor or, yeah, it's, or something. It, yeah, it's it's almost punk rock, but it's like, yeah, that energy in that room is nuts. Yeah, yeah, what a great video. But Adrian Blue's on fire. Yeah, so yeah. good. Yeah, I don't know that there's there's ever been anyone who has played with so many of my favorite artists. Adrian Blue. Yeah, and that that really when I was growing up and getting into music i'd find out about frank zappa i was like oh there's adrian blue yeah and then you listen to david bowie and you go oh there's him playing with david bowie yeah. and then talking heads King right. and you're like wait a second right right and then he sings his ass off well, you play with everybody too i mean that's uh yeah i never play with david bowie <laughs> <laughs> i did play with a couple of the guys in zappa's band the other day that oh was, yeah that was the honor yeah. which guys uh arthur barrow bass player yeah and um Ike Willis. Singer. No shit. Yeah. And uh, we did some Joe's Garage tunes. Fuck yeah. And then uh, on the same gig, Rocky, Robbie Krieger showed up. We played some Doors. It was pretty freaking... I'm guessing this is in California somewhere. It was the Troubadour, which is you know, yeah, even more... LA. So, yeah, the iconic venue. So that was cool. My buddy Marcus Rizak put that together. I hope there's a bootleg of this. I want to hear this. Yeah, he's got a recording. Yeah. Hopefully he'll put it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, maybe I could get it and use some of it on the episode. <laughs> I'll talk to Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> you should talk to Marcus. Yeah. Um, how do you bring a song to the band? Uh, well, generally I demo it out at home. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work off of paper a lot, but um, I think it's better for guys just to like use their ear and figure out what I'm doing instead of writing it out. You know, sometimes I'll write stuff out, but... um. Generally, I'll demo it out, and and the most important thing for me is baseline. And I usually write all of my baselines, and then um, kind of sketch out the keyboard and guitar parts a little bit, and um, just try and get some harmony going. And I gen- generally like I don't complete a song and then bring it to the band. Mm-hmm. I like bringing ideas to the band and then performing it and 
rehearsal and then getting a vibe from that mm. as a sort of, you know, feeling of where to go next with it. Uh, and then I'll, I'll usually write melodies after I'm hearing the rhythm section, like the rhythm section defines the melody to me as opposed to the other way around. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that's generally my process and it takes a while. It's not quick. You know, sometimes the guys get annoyed at me cause I'm just like, let's try it this way, you know, and try it this way. But you know, for me, it's like, I just, I hear things when I hear things, I'm like, and I get inspired to try something different. I just have to hear it that way. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, all right, what? Like I have to try every option. And then I'm like, okay, this is how it goes, you know? And then eventually I, I settle down and make decisions. And I mean, really like writing and recording songs is just making them 10,000 decisions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. It's just deciding this, deciding this, that's how, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and that's just eventually how it gets done. So it's a, it's a little bit of a long winded process for me, but, uh, I like, I like the end result cause it's more like a band effort. Yeah. Yeah. This, this song shade is, as soon as it starts, I, I can, I can see people in the audience or in the band making that face, that stank face, the stank face, the, Ooh, <laughs> Yeah, you can't, can't hear that on a podcast, but, <laughs> that's right. you know. Good. That's when it you works. know that yeah. something's funky, you get yeah. that face. Yeah, like, right. Okay. Ooh. It works. Yeah. Glad to hear it. <laughs> okay, so let me get your fourth album. Fourth album is a record called Winner Takes All by the Isley Brothers. The Isley Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, and I like uh, the Isleys because they're just so, I put on their music and I just, I get so happy and energetic. Like it's like drinking coffee. Mm. It's just like I put on the music and I'm like, I'll go on a bike ride. If I put on my like best of Isleys playlist, I feel like I can ride for hours. It's just mm. energetic. So it's like if I was stuck up in that cabin and I had to dig myself out, I'd put on some Isleys and like, Dig out the snow, you know what I mean? Or whatever it was, yeah. chop some wood, whatever, survival, you know, but like positive energy. It's really, that music does it for me every time. Did you hear that growing up? No. This music? No, I, no, I discovered that later. I don't know when I really, I, I mean, shit. I really didn't discover Isley's in earnest until I started getting uh, Spotify. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it's just like, oh, what's this track? What's this, you know, it's amazing how Spotify is just like every freaking record. Mm -hmm. The fact that Z all of Zappa's music is up on Spotify right 75 now. 75 records. It's insane. Yeah. Like, you know, that his estate allowed for that is amazing. Or the Beatles or whatever, all their music's there. So like the Isleys, their, their you know, career spans six decades or something. Yeah. Like they started in the 50s. They wrote Twist and Shout. Oh, wow. Yeah, they wrote Twist and Shout. And then the guys in the Isleys, Ernie Isley, because, you know, he was, Ernie Isley's a guitar player. He was just a little kid when the Isley Brothers started. They were mostly like a vocal group. But uh, they ended up hiring Jimi Hendrix to be their guitar player just for like a year or something. But um, Ernie Isley talks about being like, 
12 years old and sitting next to his big brother on the couch. I guess it was Ronald. And then on the left of him was Jimi Hendrix. And they're watching the Beatles do twist and shout on Ed Sullivan, you know, and Ernie's just like, Holy shit. I can't believe this is happening yeah. right now. You know, like this is my family. So he ended up being the guitar player for the band once he got old enough. And then they kind of turned into just straight family band where it was Ernie and Ronald and uh, I can't remember bass and, and keys, I guess. But Ernie played all the drums on all the 70s Isley Brother tracks. Wow. He played drums and guitar. It's crazy. And it's some of the funkiest drumming. That it, Like I said, it just makes me so happy. Sometimes the songwriter, you know, even if it's not somebody who plays the drums a lot, yeah. they just have rhythm. Yeah. And they sit down and they play better than the, yeah. the drummer does. It's music. You yeah. Know? They feel, yeah, you, he translated it to whatever instrument, you know. But uh, yeah, that, so, so once I started getting into the Isleys, thank God for Spotify and every album is up there and I'm just going through making a playlist of all their yeah. nastiest shit. And that's, so that was fairly recent. You know? All the stuff that gives you that face. Basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank <laughs> So you were talking about, um, mailing postcards to a, a mailing list, sleeping on floors, all yeah. that stuff. And, <clears throat> um, as someone up who grew up in, in Pittsburgh in the DIY in, in, in the punk scene, there are some overlaps. I think the jam yeah. banders and the punks would never sit in a room together and hang out, but they would have a lot in common, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Sure. Well, any young band getting out there, it's like you got no choice. You're just trying to figure it out, you know? No one's going to do it for you. No one's going to do it for you, and you got to just... Sometimes you just got to pay your dues and get out there and just play. I mean, it's different now, though, man. It's like back when, you know, pre-internet... Pre um, Facebook and all that, and even pre cell phone, it's like you make you you know if you spent the money to make a record, you know you might spend like twenty grand. You made a bunch of CDs, you know you produced all these CDs. How's anyone going to hear them? You know what I mean? You got to mm-hmm. drive to the city, play the gig in front of like fifteen people, and hope that like three or four of them wanted the CD. Yeah. And they bought the CD for 15 bucks. And then you're like, wow, okay, three people are going to play this music for all their friends because they were stoked on the show until mm-hmm. their, their friends are going to hear it. And then maybe, you know, they'll like mail order it, but hopefully they'll just show up the next time you play and want to buy their own CD. You know yeah. what I mean? And it became worth something because the only way you could get it pretty much was buying it at, front, at the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. It became yeah. merchandise. Uh, now, like, you know, you just sell T-shirts, you don't sell CDs at shows. But, now, you know, now you can make the music at home and then put it on Spotify and it precedes you. Right. You right. know, before, the only way for that to happen is to get on the radio. Yep. You know, so to have your music, people hearing your music before you even show up in the town is huge. And so that's, I mean, the fact that, Bands are getting as big as they are now without a record label. Like, say, a band like this band called Goose. Yeah. Friends yeah. of ours, like, super, I mean, they're great players and a great band. It's like, I think they have like two records out and they're mm-hmm. like selling out Red Rocks and Dylan Amphitheater and doing all this stuff. And it's just because, you know, first of all, they're really good and they're smart at how they're handling it. And they're 
not only putting music out on Spotify, like live shows, but they're, they're um, recording and mixing and doing multi-camera shoots of every live show. Yeah. And then that's preceding them. You know what I mean? Like they go to a town they've never played before and people already know it Mm. because they've seen it on YouTube and, you know, it's high quality shit. So it's like, it's, you know, it's amazing what you can do now without that machinery behind you, like a record label. And so for us, when we were, when we were a lot younger, it was like, it was, that was a struggle, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sleeping on floors was real. Like, you know, it's like, but you're passionate about it, so you do it, you know, and you mm-hmm. don't, it felt, it felt, uh, it felt um, exciting, you know. Yeah. It was exciting to do it. You know, there are stigmas about the jam band scene, and I don't, cons- if somebody asked me what does Motet play, I wouldn't say they're a jam band, although maybe a band like Goose, I would just say, that's a jam band. And somebody said to me a long time ago, um, back home when I said that I was going to see fish or something, they said, uh, rock and roll is about execution. So I don't like jam music and I understand that, but you guys execute. Right. And so if anybody listening, uh, says, well, I'm not going to listen to kind of that, that world of music, you know, because it's not about, execution what would you say sets the, the, the motet apart um yeah i don't i mean you you execute you know as well or not as well as you want you know i mean that becomes uh just your own sort of i mean that's your craft in music is how you execute that's how you carry your craft so it's like whether you want to execute you know, super tight or you want to execute super loose. Like I think there's punk bands out there that are super successful that would think that would say that executing super tight is not cool. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's, it's not the vibe, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you want to like be loose and, and like frenetic and just all over the place, but have lots of energy about it. Some of like the best execution is a little stiff, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So for me, there's a balance there of like not being stiff, but also being tight with what, you know, what you do like that. That's the music that I like the most. Um, and it's, for me, it's not all about execution. You know, there's a lot more to it. And, and sometimes just losing yourself. I've seen, you know, look at Jimmy Page, you know, mm-hmm. like he was one of the best guitar players ever, but he was super loose on stage. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's one way or the other for us. I think part of our, um, drive and part of our craft is to execute more consistently and, and sort of tighter, uh, you know, as much as we can, like that's part of our, our sort of path. Yeah. So whatever it takes to do that, we're constantly working on that. You know what I mean? And, uh, but we're, we're not, we're not, trying to not do it and lose our ability to, to, to get loose, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and to get wild on stage if that's what like is happening, you yeah. know, it's like, especially in solos, you know, like you might like want the, the head and the main portion of the song to be tight and in it. And then when you get to a solo, then things get loose and weird and then you bring it back you know what I mean? To have the ability to do both 
I think is really what makes things interesting. You were um, talking before um, about coming up in kind of the same scene as fish and Motet and fish both have compositions and then also improvisations. Yeah. I'm wondering if you ever see a, a jam band, especially a young one, and just say to yourself, they should probably learn their shit first <laughs> and then get up and be like, we're going to jam. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's like a lot of um, younger musicians who just think that um, the jams, the improvisations are, they just happen because you close your eyes and you just feel it. Mm -hmm. But really improvisations come from musicians who have this huge vocabulary of, you know, riffs, licks, parts, you mm -hmm. know, uh, different, it's just like a language, you know? And um, the best ones have that huge vocabulary, which takes a long time to put together. Mm -hmm. And But when you're on stage, it can sound like it's just being made up out of thin air, you right. know what I mean? But we all know what it takes to get there, you know, even though it sounds like it's just coming out of nowhere you know so i think it's a little bit of a mistake and i think that maybe the musicians who make that mistake aren't sort of um sort of learning personally from other musicians who are sort of well versed in that you know ability to do that so it's like you know it's, it's just part of learning the craft you yeah. know it's like understanding that it takes way more than just you know learning how to play an e and yeah. then learning what a pentatonic scale is yeah. and then just going for it. You know, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And usually like you shed up here so that you can play down here. So like, even if you hear, you know, uh, Derek trucks playing a blues and E and he's playing the, like all the pentatonic notes or whatever, yeah. <clears throat> his ability is up here and you're not even, you're not hearing that, but it's there in his mind. And like what comes out is even more sort of, creative and beautiful because of that you know you can pick it apart and it becomes less mysterious so whenever i hear like i used to listen to the beatles so much and it affected me when i was a little kid in just sort of like deep way a transcendent kind of way so it still does you know that, that doesn't that hasn't left you know so I'd, I'd have to have that album with me just to like revisit that feeling Have you ever done that album as one of your no. Halloween shows? No. That no, would that would be cool. That would be incredible. Yeah, that would be amazing. While my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. Just, oh, you ever man. see that Prince uh, version? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he finishes a solo and literally just throws his guitar into the <laughs> crowd. It's yeah. so good. Oh. So good, yeah. Have you ever done an instrumental for one of those? An instrumental album? Uh, yeah, well, we did uh, Artist. We did Herbie Hancock. Oh yeah, that was the first one actually. We actually did the Beatles one year before that, but it didn't it wasn't so memorable. So uh, our, we say our first one was a Herbie show, and uh, that was all instrumental because Jan's our singer was on tour with Charlie Hunters, so we mm. had to figure something out. And um, did you do anything from Sextant? Oh, I don't think so. We did something from Fat Albert Rotunda. Um, I don't know. Is tell me a bedtime story on Sextant? I don't. It's hard with instrumental albums. It's so hard to remember the yeah. names of the songs. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if we did. We may have, but uh, well, I really appreciate you doing this, Dave. All right, buddy. Nice. Yeah, it was fun. Very nice. I'll give you another hour.
That was Dave Watts of the Motet and, and me geeking out on the drums and music of all kinds. Uh, check out the new Motet album all day and check out the Motet on tour all over the United States this summer. Thanks to Moncton Guitars in Broomfield and the Velvet Elk in Boulder for sponsoring. And thank you for listening to Mile High Stash. I do hope to see you at the live recording of Mile High Stash I'm doing at the Roots Music Project in Boulder, Saturday, June 3rd. More info on that at rootsmusicproject.org. See you right here next Monday, as usual as well. Go back to Montreal